Chapter Fourteen of Two Years Before the Mast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. Chapter Fourteen Discontent. After a few days, finding the trade beginning to slacken, we hove our anchor up, set our topsails, ran the stars and stripes up to the peak, fired a gun which was returned from the Presidio, and left the little town astern, standing out of the bay, and bearing down the coast again for Santa Barbara. As we were now going to leeward, we had a fair wind, and a plenty of it. After doubling Point Pinos, we bore up, set setting sails alow and aloft, and were walking off at the rate of eight or nine knots, promising to traverse in twenty-four hours the distance, which we were nearly three weeks in traversing on the passage up. We passed Point Conception at a flying rate, the wind blowing so that it would have seemed half a gale to us if we had been going the other way and close-hauled. As we drew near to the islands of Santa Barbara, it died away a little, but we came to at our old anchoring ground in less than thirty hours from the time of leaving Monterey. Here everything was pretty much as we left it, the large bay without a vessel in it, the surf roaring and rolling in upon the beach, the white mission, the dark town, and the high, treeless mountains. Here, too, we had our south-easter tacks aboard again, slip-ropes, buoy-ropes, cells furled with reefs in them, and rope-yarns for gaskets. We lay at this place about a fortnight, employed in landing goods and taking off hides, occasionally, when the surf was not high, but there did not appear to be one half the business doing here that there was in Monterey. In fact, so far as we were concerned, the town might almost as well have been in the middle of the Cordilleras. We lay at a distance of three miles from the beach, and the town was nearly a mile farther, so that we saw little or nothing of it. Occasionally we landed a few goods, which were taken away by Indians in large, clumsy ox-carts, with the bow of the yoke on the ox's neck instead of under it, and with small, solid wheels. A few hides were brought down, which we carried off in the California style. This we had now got pretty well accustomed to, and hardened to also, for it does require a little hardening, even to the toughest. The hides are brought down dry, or they will not be received. When they are taken from the animal, they have holes cut in the ends, and are staked out, and thus dried in the sun without shrinking. They are then doubled once, lengthwise, with the hair side usually in, and sent down upon mules or in carts, and piled above high-water mark, and then we take them upon our heads, one at a time, or two if they are small, and wade out with them and throw them into the boat, which, as there are no wharves, we usually kept anchored by a small kedge, or keelek, just outside of the surf. We all provided ourselves with thick scotch caps, which would be soft to the head, and at the same time protect it, for we soon learned that, however it might look or feel at first, the head-work was the only system for California. 
for besides that the seas breaking high often obliged us to carry the hides so in order to keep them dry we found that as they were very large and heavy and nearly as stiff as boards it was the only way that we could carry them with any convenience to ourselves some of the crew tried other expedients saying that they looked too much like west indian negroes but they all came to it at last the great art is getting them on the head we had to take them from the ground and as they were often very heavy and as wide as the arms could stretch and were easily taken by the wind we used to have some trouble with them i have often been laughed at myself and joined in laughing at others pitching ourselves down in the sand in trying to swing a large hide upon our heads or nearly blown over with one in a little gust of wind the captain made it harder for us by telling us that it was california fashion to carry two on the head at a time and he insisted upon it and we did not wish to be outdone by other vessels we carried two for the first few months but after falling in with a few other hide drogers and finding that they carried only one at a time we knocked off the extra one and thus made our duty somewhat easier after our heads had become used to the weight and we had learned the true california style of tossing a hide we could carry off two or three hundred in a short time without much trouble but it was always wet work and if the beach was stony bad for our feet for we of course went barefoot on this duty as no shoes could stand such constant wetting with salt water and after this we had a pull of three miles with a loaded boat which often took a couple of hours we had now got well settled down into our harbor duties which as they are a good deal different from those at sea it may be well enough to describe in the first place all hands are called at daylight or rather especially if the days are short before daylight as soon as the first gray of the morning the cook makes his fire in the galley the steward goes about his work in the cabin and the crew rig the head pump and wash down the decks the chief mate is always on deck but takes no active part all the duty coming upon the second mate who has to roll up his trousers and paddle about the decks barefooted like the rest of the crew the washing swabbing squilgeing etc lasts or is made to last until eight o'clock when breakfast is ordered fore and aft after breakfast for which half an hour is allowed the boats are lowered down and made fast astern or out to the swinging booms by guess-warps and the crew are turned to upon their day's work this is various and its character depends upon circumstances there is always more or less of boating in small boats and if heavy goods are to be taken ashore or hides are to be brought down to the beach for us then all hands are sent ashore with an officer in the longboat then there is a good deal to be done in the hold goods to be broken out and cargo to be shifted to make room for hides or to keep the trim of the vessel in addition to this the usual work upon the rigging must be going on there is much of the latter kind of work which can only be done when the vessel is in port everything too must be kept taut and in good order spun yarn made chafing gear repaired and all the other ordinary work 
The great difference between sea and harbor duty is in the division of time. Instead of having a watch on deck and a watch below, as at sea, all hands are at work together, except at meal times, from daylight till dark, and at night an anchor watch is kept, which, with us, consisted of only two at a time, all the crew taking turns. An hour is allowed for dinner, and at dark the decks are cleared up, the boats hoisted, supper ordered, and at eight the lights are put out, except in the binnacle where the glass stands, and the anchor watch is set. Thus, when at anchor, the crew have more time at night, standing watch only about two hours, but have no time to themselves in the day, so that reading, mending, clothes, etc., has to be put off until Sunday, which is usually given. Some religious captains give their crews Saturday afternoons to do their washing and mending in, so that they may have their Sundays free. This is a good arrangement, and goes far to account for the preference sailors usually show for vessels under such command. We were well satisfied if we got even Sunday to ourselves. For if any hides came down on that day, as was often the case when they were brought from a distance, we were obliged to take them off, which usually occupied half a day. Besides, as we now lived on fresh beef and ate one bullock a week, the animal was almost always brought down on Sunday, and we had to go ashore, kill it, dress it, and bring it on board, which was another interruption. Then, too, our common day's work was protracted and made more fatiguing by hides coming down late in the afternoon, which sometimes kept us at work in the surf by starlight, with the prospect of pulling on board and stowing them all away before supper. But all these little vexations and labors would have been nothing. They would have been passed by as the common evils of a sea life, which every sailor, who was a man, will go through without complaint, were it not for the uncertainty, or worse than uncertainty, which hung over the nature and length of our voyage. Here we were, in a little vessel with a small crew, on a half-civilized coast at the ends of the earth, and with a prospect of remaining an indefinite period, two or three years at the least. When we left Boston, we supposed that ours was to be a voyage of eighteen months, or two years at most. But upon arriving on the coast, we learned something more of the trade, and found that, in the scarcity of hides, which was yearly greater and greater, it would take us a year at least to collect our own cargo, besides the passage out and home, and that we were also to collect a cargo for a large ship belonging to the same firm, which was soon to come on the coast, and to which we were to act as tender. We had heard rumors of such a ship to follow us, which had leaked out from the captain and mate, but we passed them by as mere yarns to our arrival, when they were confirmed by the letters which we brought from the owners to their agent. The ship California, belonging to the same firm, had been nearly two years on the coast getting a full cargo, and was now at San Diego, from which port she was expected to sell in a few weeks for Boston, and we were to collect all the hides we could, and deposit them at San Diego, when the new ship, which would carry forty thousand, was to be filled and sent home, 
and then we were to begin anew upon our own cargo. Here was a gloomy prospect indeed. The Lagoda, a smaller ship than the California, carrying only thirty-one or thirty-two thousand, had been two years getting her cargo, and we were to collect a cargo of forty thousand besides our own, which would be twelve or fifteen thousand, and hides were said to be growing scarcer. Then, too, this ship, which had been to us a worse phantom than any flying Dutchman, was no phantom, or ideal thing, but had been reduced to a certainty. So much so that a name was given to her, and it was said that she was to be the alert, a well-known India man, which was expected in Boston in a few months when we sailed. There could be no doubt, and all looked black enough. Hints were thrown out about three and four years. The older sailors said they never should see Boston again, but should lay their bones in California, and a cloud seemed to hang over the whole voyage. Besides, we were not provided for so long a voyage, and clothes and all sailors' necessities were excessively dear, three or four hundred percent advance upon the Boston prices. This was bad enough for the crew, but still worse was it for me, who did not mean to be a sailor for life, having intended only to be gone eighteen months or two years. Three or four years might make me a sailor in every respect, mind and habits, as well as body, nolens volens, and would put all my companions so far ahead of me that a college degree in a profession would be in vain to think of. And I made up my mind that, feel as I might, a sailor I might have to be, and to command a merchant vessel might be the limit of my ambition. Besides the length of the voyage, and the hard and exposed life, we were in the remote parts of the earth, on an almost desert coast, in a country where there is neither law nor gospel, and where sailors are at their captain's mercy, there being no American consul, or any one to whom a complaint could be made. We lost all interest in the voyage, cared nothing about the cargo, which we were only collecting for others, began to patch our clothes, and felt as though our fate was fixed beyond all hope of change. In addition to, and perhaps partly as a consequence of, this state of things, there was trouble brewing on board the vessel. Our mate, as the first man is always called, par excellence, was a worthy man, a more honest, upright, and kind-hearted man I never saw. But he was too easy and amiable for the mate of a merchantman. He was not the man to call a sailor a son of a bitch, and knock him down with a handspike. Perhaps he really lacked the energy and spirit for such a voyage as ours, and for such a captain. Captain Thompson was a vigorous, energetic fellow. As sailors say, he hadn't a lazy bone in him. He was made of steel and whalebone. He was a man to tow the mark, and to make everyone else step up to it. During all the time that I was with him, I never saw him sit down on deck. He was always active in driving, severe in his discipline, and expected the same of his officers. The mate not being enough of a driver for him, he was dissatisfied with him, became suspicious that discipline was getting relaxed, and began to interfere in everything. 
he drew the reins tighter, and, as in all quarrels between officers, the sailors side with the one who treats them best. He became suspicious of the crew. He saw that things went wrong, that nothing was done with a will, and in his attempt to remedy the difficulty by severity, he made everything worse. We were, in all respects, unfortunately situated, captain, officers, and crew, entirely unfitted for one another, and every circumstance and event was like a two-edged sword, and cut both ways. The length of the voyage, which made us dissatisfied, made the captain at the same time see the necessity of order and strict discipline and the nature of the country, which caused us to feel that we had nowhere to go for redress, but were at the mercy of a hard master, made the captain understand, on the other hand, that he must depend entirely upon his own resources. Severity created discontent, and signs of discontent provoked severity. Then, too, ill-treatment and dissatisfaction are no linamenta laborum, and many a time I have heard the sailors say that they should not mind the length of the voyage and the hardships if they were only kindly treated, and if they could feel that something was done to make work lighter and life easier. We felt as though our situation was a call upon our superiors to give us occasional relaxations, and to make our yoke easier. But the opposite policy was pursued. We were kept at work all day when in port, which, together with a watch at night, made us glad to turn in as soon as we got below. Thus we had no time for reading, or, which was of more importance to us, for washing and mending our clothes. And then, when we were at sea, sailing from port to port, instead of giving us watch and watch, as was the custom on board every other vessel on the coast, we were all kept on deck and at work, rain or shine, making spun yarn and rope and at other work in good weather, and picking oakum when it was too wet for anything else. All hands were called to come up and see it rain, and kept on deck hour after hour in drenching rain, standing round the deck so far apart as to prevent our talking with one another, with our tarpaulins and oilcloth jackets on, picking old rope to pieces, or laying up gaskets and robands. This was often done, too, when we were lying in port with two anchors down, and no necessity for more than one man on deck as a lookout. This is what is called hazing a crew, and working their old iron up. While laying at Santa Barbara we encountered another southeaster, and like the first it came on in the night. The great black clouds moving round from the southward, covering the mountain, and hanging down over the town, appearing almost to rest upon the roofs of the houses. We made sail, slipped our cable, cleared the point, and beat about for four days in the offing, under close sail, with continual rain and high seas and winds. No wonder, thought we, they have no rain in the other seasons, for enough seemed to have fallen in those four days to last through a common summer. On the fifth day it cleared up, after a few hours, as is usual, of rain coming down like a four-hour shower-bath, and we found ourselves drifted nearly ten leagues from the anchorage, and having light head-winds, we did not return until the sixth day. Having recovered our anchor, 
we made preparations for getting under way to go down to leeward. We had hoped to go directly to San Diego, and thus fall in with the California before she sailed for Boston, but our orders were to stop at an intermediate port called San Pedro, and as we were to lie there a week or two, and the California was to sail in a few days, we lost the opportunity. Just before sailing, the captain took on board a short, red-haired, round-shouldered, vulgar-looking fellow, who had lost one eye and squinted with the other, and introducing him as Mr. Russell, told us he was an officer on board. This was too bad. We had lost overboard on the passage one of the best of our number. Another had been taken from us an appointed clerk, and thus weakened and reduced, instead of shipping some hands to make our work easier, he had put another officer over us to watch and drive us. We now had four officers and only six in the forecastle. This was bringing her down too much by the stern for our comfort. Leaving Santa Barbara, we coasted along down, the country appearing level or moderately uneven, and for the most part sandy and treeless, until doubling a high sandy point, we let go our anchor at a distance of three and a half miles from shore. It was like a vessel bound to St. John's, Newfoundland, coming to anchor on the Grand Banks, for the shore, being low, appeared to be at a greater distance than it actually was, and we thought we might as well have stayed at Santa Barbara and sent our boat down for the hides. The land was of a clayey quality, and as far as the eye could reach entirely bare of trees, and even shrubs, and there was no sign of a town, not even a house to be seen. What brought us into such a place we could not conceive. No sooner had we come to anchor than the slip-rope and the other preparations for south-easters were got ready, and there was reason enough for it, for we lay exposed to every wind that could blow, except the northerly winds, and they came over a flat country with a rake of more than a league of water. As soon as everything was snug on board, the boat was lowered, and we pulled ashore. Our new officer, who had been several times in the port before, taking the place of steersman. As we drew in, we found the tide low, and the rocks and stones covered with kelp and seaweed, lying bare for the distance of nearly an eighth of a mile. Leaving the boat, and picking our way barefoot over these, we came to what is called the landing-place at high-water mark. The soil was, as it appeared at first, loose and clayey, and except the stalks of the mustard plant, there was no vegetation. Just in front of the landing and immediately over it was a small hill, which, from its being not more than thirty or forty feet high, we had not perceived from our anchorage. Over this hill we saw three men coming down, dressed partly like sailors and partly like Californians one of them having on a pair of untanned leather trousers and a red bezu shirt. When they reached us, we found that they were Englishmen. They told us that they had belonged to a small Mexican brig, which had been driven ashore here in the southeaster, and now lived in a small house just over the hill. Going up this hill with them, we saw close behind it a small, low building with one room, containing a fireplace, cooking apparatus, etc., 
and the rest of it unfinished and used as a place to store hides and goods. This, they told us, was built by some traders in the Pueblo, a town about thirty miles in the interior to which this was the port, and used by them as a storehouse, and also as a lodging place when they came down to trade with the vessels. These three men were employed by them to keep the house in order, and to look out for the things stored in it. They said that they had been there nearly a year, and had nothing to do most of the time, living upon beef, hard bread, and frijoles, a peculiar kind of bean, very abundant in California. The nearest house, they told us, was a rancho, or cattle farm, about three miles off, and one of them went there, at the request of our officer, to order a horse to be sent down, with which the agent who was on board might go up to the Pueblo. From one of them, who was an intelligent English sailor, I learned a good deal in a few minutes' conversation about the place, its trade, and the news from the southern ports. San Diego, he said, was about eighty miles to the leeward of San Pedro, and they had heard from there by a Mexican who came up on horseback that the California had sailed for Boston, and that the Lagoda, which had been in San Pedro only a few weeks before, was taking in her cargo for Boston. The Ayacucho was also there, loading for Caleo, and the little Laureate, which had run directly down from Monterey, where we left her. San Diego, he told me, was a small, snug place, having very little trade, but decidedly the best harbor on the coast, being completely landlocked, and the water as smooth as a duck-pond. This was the depot for all vessels engaged in the trade, each one having a large house there, built of rough boards, in which they stowed their hides as fast as they collected them in their trips up and down the coast, and when they had procured a full cargo, spent a few weeks there taking it in, smoking ship, laying in wood and water, and making other preparations for the voyage home. The Lagoda was now about this business. When we should be about it was more than I could tell. Two years at least, I thought to myself. I also learned, to my surprise, that the desolate-looking place we were in furnished more hides than any port on the coast. It was the only port for a distance of eighty miles, and about thirty miles in the interior was a fine plain country, filled with herds of cattle, in the center of which was the Pueblo de los Angelos the largest town in California, and several of the wealthiest missions, to all of which San Pedro was a seaport. Having made arrangements for a horse to take the agent to the Pueblo the next day, we picked our way again over the green, slippery rocks, and pulled towards the brig, which was so far off that we could hardly see her in the increasing darkness, and when we got on board, the boats were hoisted up, and the crew at supper. Going down into the forecastle, eating our supper, and lighting our cigars and pipes, we had, as usual, to tell what we had seen or heard ashore. We all agreed that it was the worst place we had seen yet, especially for getting off hides, and our lying off at so great a distance looked as though it was bad for southeasters. After a few disputes as to whether we should have to carry our goods up the hill or not, we talked of San Diego, the probability of seeing the Lagoda before she sailed, etc., etc. 
The next day we pulled the agent ashore, and he went up to visit the Pueblo and the neighboring missions, and in a few days, as the result of his labors, large ox-carts and droves of mules loaded with hides were seen coming over the flat country. We loaded our longboat with goods of all kinds, light and heavy, and pulled ashore. After landing and rolling them over the stones upon the beach, we stopped, waiting for the carts to come down the hill and take them, but the captain soon settled the matter by ordering us to carry them all up to the top, saying that that was California fashion. So what the oxen would not do, we were obliged to do. The hill was low but steep, and the earth, being clayey and wet, with the recent rains, was but bad holding-ground for our feet. The heavy barrels and casks were rolled up with some difficulty, getting behind and putting our shoulders to them. Now and then our feet slipping added to the danger of the casks rolling back upon us. But the greatest trouble was with the large boxes of sugar. These we had to place upon oars, and lifting them up, rest the oars upon our shoulders, and creep slowly up the hill with the gait of a funeral procession. After an hour or two of hard work, we got them all up, and found the carts standing full of hides, which we had to unload, and to load the carts again with our own goods. The lazy Indians, who came down with them, squatting on their hams, looking on, doing nothing, and when we asked them to help us, only shaking their heads, or drawing out no quiero. Having unloaded the carts, we started up the Indians, who went off, one on each side of the oxen, with long sticks, sharpened at the end, to punch them with. This is one of the means of saving labor in California. Two Indians to two oxen. Now the hides were to be got down, and for this purpose we brought the boat round to the place where the hill was steeper, and threw them off, letting them slide over the slope. Many of them lodged, and we had to let ourselves down and set them going again, and in this way became covered with dust and our clothes torn. After we had the hides all down, we were obliged to take them on our heads and walk over the stones and through the water to the boat. The water and the stones together would wear out a pair of shoes a day, and as shoes were very scarce, and very dear, we were compelled to go barefooted. At night we went on board, having had the hardest and most disagreeable day's work that we had yet experienced. For several days we were employed in this manner, until we had landed forty or fifty tons of goods, and brought on board about two thousand hides. When the trade began to slacken, and we were kept at work on board during the latter part of the week, either in the hold or upon the rigging. On Thursday night there was a violent blow from the northward, but as this was offshore, we had only to let go our other anchor and hold on. We were called up at night to send down the royal yards. It was as dark as a pocket, and the vessel pitching at her anchors. I went up to the fore and Stimson to the main, and we soon had them down ship-shape in Bristol fashion, for, as we had now become used to our duty aloft, everything above the cross-trees was left to us, who were the youngest of the crew, except one boy. 
End of chapter 14